here's my big idea today. When the Lord heavily afflicts us, it is a legitimate and seasonable time for prayer. It is out of our own experience of grace in these times of affliction that we are able to share gospel hope with others. And again, we're in the book of Jonah. I'll just again remind you that the content of the book, the purpose is to reveal the character of God. While we're looking and examining Jonah's life, really he's not the main character in the story. God is. God will be and is the center of this story. His interaction with Jonah, as we're going to see specifically here in chapter 2, his interaction with creation, that's here too. His interaction with Nineveh next week in chapter 3 has much to teach us about who God is and his character. The context, again, is, is Jonah, who's a prophet of God. And if you remember from our series in Isaiah, a prophet is someone who simply tells God's truth to God's people with God's authority. Thus far in our story, Jonah has rejected this call. Remember, God specifically and clearly and seriously called Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach there, to call out against them, to let them know that their lifestyle, their environment, the way that they were living was an offense to God, and that if they would have hope of rescue, they should turn and change their ways. But Jonah, as a matter of fact, rejects that call. In fact, we looked at it last week, he actually heads in the opposite geographical direction toward the city of Tarshish. This leads to God afflicting him with a great storm upon the sea, so much so that professional merchant sailors panic. They ask Jonah, what should we do? They pray to any God they can think of. Finally, Jonah says, listen, the answer is to throw me overboard. I'm running from God. There's no hope uh, unless you, you throw me overboard. So the sailors reluctantly finally end up throwing Jonah overboard. He's in the water at the end of chapter 1. We see that God appoints a great fish, which we'll look at in just a minute. And then those merchant sailors watching God move in the midst of creation begin to do what? They begin to worship Jonah's God. That even in the midst of Jonah's rejection of God's call to go to Nineveh, God was still using him to teach God's truth to his own people. Again, my big idea through the whole book is that God is not a reluctant missionary. That despite Jonah's reluctance to preach and to reach those whom God wants, God will still reach them. Amen? Amen. So where do we pick up with Jonah? Last week, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, or for us, one whole week in between passages. What I wanted to point out to is this word here in verse 17. We need to note that the fish is appointed by God. What does that mean? It means the fish is there specifically at the behest of its creator, God. God is supernaturally intervening in creation to rescue Jonah. Remember, he's out in the middle of the sea. There's no hope of swimming to shore for Jonah. It is drowning or supernatural rescue, and God intervenes in the midst of Jonah drowning and appoints a great fish. Here's what I want you to recognize. Even down to the precise placement in the Mediterranean Sea, to the opening of its mouth, its every movement is directed by God. God providentially and supernaturally intervenes in the lives of his people. Amen? Jonah's refusal to obey God in chapter 1 arose through an unwillingness to embrace the possibility that God would care enough about other people to extend his grace to them. See, we talked about when the word of the Lord was delivered to Jonah. Remember, he was invited into God's presence to see things from God's perspective. Jonah rejected that, and so now God is demonstrating his grace to Jonah in a powerful and albeit unique way. 
I'm sure we've all gathered in this room. We've all experienced God's grace in our, mo- uh, in our lives at specific moments when perhaps we even doubted God could move and he did move, but anybody else been swallowed by a fish? Not that God couldn't, I just want to check. That's what Jonah experiences. He experiences God's grace in a powerful and unique way. God sends a storm, and then in response, Jonah's solution is to be thrown overboard, and then God appoints a great fish to swallow him whole. So I've got a question for you this week to think about and pray through. What unique ways has God demonstrated his grace to you? Jonah experiences it in a unique way. But what unique ways has God demonstrated his grace to you? If you that's one of the benefits we have of looking back over God's movement in our life as we get to think and consider what unique ways has God demonstrated his grace to me. God has demonstrated unique grace to Jonah. Inside the great fish, think about this for a moment. You're Jonah. You're about to drown. God appoints a great fish. He swallows you. Now imagine the environment that Jonah finds himself in. Ew. Exactly. <laughs> think about the heat. Think about the overpoweringly nauseous smell and the burning of stomach acids that must have been around Jonah for these three days. But here's what we need to understand about this supernatural intervening in Jonah's life. Remember, it has a bigger purpose. It is a unique expression of grace to Jonah, but what God is doing in the midst of Jonah's life is actually bigger. It's part of God's greater redemptive story. Jonah's experience will serve a greater purpose. It's a foreshadowing of what the coming Messiah would experience in his own mission of redemption on behalf of God the Father. Remember in Matthew chapter 29, we read this last week, but it bears repeating through the whole book. Jesus answered the Pharisees, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what's the sign of Jonah? Verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Spoiler alert. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah's experience of God's unique grace in that moment when the fish swallows him is not just for the physical salvation of his body, but will serve as a foreshadowing of what God is going to do in the souls of humanity for eternity, rescuing them. Jonah's nasty, near-death experience in the digestive system of that fish for three days and three nights foreshadows Jesus' three days and three nights in the grave. And just like we'll see at the end of this chapter, when Jonah's vomited out onto dry land, Jesus would not remain in the grave either. Amen? Amen? But he too would emerge in a much greater state than Jonah does for sure. Amen. See, Jonah's experience would be a visual aid for the disbelieving Jews of Jesus' day. These Pharisees and Sadducees were anxious to see a sign, and Jesus tells them, you'll get one, the sign of Jonah. There was a purpose for these three days for Jonah, even if Jonah never learned what they were. Let's pick up verse 1, chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Because when you're in the belly of the fish, there's nothing else to do. I mean, quite frankly, like that's all you've got. Apart from the opening and closing verses, verse 1 and verse 10, the entirety of chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer. It's the context and the content of Jonah's prayer. This is the change from Jonah's silence in, before God in chapter 1. In chapter 1, God calls out to Jonah, says, hey, go to this place, and we don't hear anything from Jonah. In fact, we don't hear a peep from Jonah until he tells the merchant sailors who he is. 
In fact, the only people who speak in chapter 1 are the Gentile sailors who worship and make vows before they are spared by God when they throw Jonah overboard. The themes in Jonah's prayer include honesty, repentance, thanksgiving, and worship. In fact, much of what Jonah prays from inside the belly, this is interesting, can be found in the book of Psalms. When the psalmist says, all the waves and breakers have swept over me in Psalm 42.7, he meant it metaphorically, thinking of the immense pressure of his life at the time. But when Jonah repeats these words in his prayer time, he meant it quite literally. It's an interesting dichotomy to see Jonah in chapter 1 run from the word of the Lord when God calls him, and now when he's in danger in the belly of the fish, where does he run? He runs to the word of the Lord as he prays. Verse 2, let's get into Jonah's prayer. Jonah prays, verse 2, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. It is only when Jonah is treading the very doorstep of death that he finally returns to the Lord. No one could be a more fitting candidate as a patron saint than procrastination than Jonah. It is in his own words that is from the belly of Sheol, what he would, would consider what we might say is hell, that he cries out to the Lord. Even though his anguish and his plight is self-inflicted, right? I mean, Jonah's on a course of action that he chose under his own power, under his own will. The Lord hears him and answers. Even when we as individual Christians seem to be swallowed up by something greater and more powerful than ourselves, we must know that just like Jonah, we are not out of God's reach. Amen? Amen. That even from the stomach of evil, God hears the cries of repentant people. And our desperation and distress, the Lord answers and rescues Jonah. The Lord, as I mentioned, appoints a great fish and swallows him up. Verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Your waves and your billows passed over me. Again, despite Jonah's obedience, he has never stopped looking upon the Lord as God. Thus he attributes even him being cast into the open waters as an act belonging to God himself. Here he gives us another description of his physical circumstances. Like he's saying, hey, I'm in open water. Have you ever been in open water? You ever had that kind of panic moment? Yeah. Maybe the, the boat seems just a, a little farther away, or uh, the, the riptide seemed to carry you just a little farther than you intended to. This happened to me a couple summers ago. My nephew and my son and I all went to the beach. It's kind of a guy's trip, and uh, they're out boogie boarding, and I, and I go out and do a little body surfing, and all of a sudden we're caught in the riptide, and all that knowledge about swimming parallel to the shore that they teach you and remind you when you swim in a riptide, out of my brain. And so I'm trying to swim into the shore. I've got my son and my nephew out in the water. My nephew makes it to shore. And there I'm trying to push my son into shore, only realizing that we're getting farther and farther away until some nice, kind, fit 16-year-old lifeguard came and rescued me. <laughs> but there was that moment, I was freaking out. I thought, this is it. What's the headline going to be? Right? Like local desert man drowns in the ocean, never should have been. That's where Jonah's at here in verse 3. Not, not, just, not just spiritually, not just emotionally is he drowning, but he's physically drowning. Yes. And he turns and starts praying. Verse 4, then, he, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. In the midst of his prayer and distress, 
Jonah believes in the word of the Lord. He says, at least, again, I will see the temple of your holiness. What Jonah once now ran from, trying to get away from the presence of God, what does he say? I want to be in. I believe in faith. Once again, I will be in your presence, Lord. Again, for, for, for Jonah, the temple was the symbol of the physical presence of God. As believers post Christ's death and resurrection, ascension to the throne, and sending of the Holy Spirit, we exist now as the embodiment, as Christians, of the presence of God, as the Spirit lives inside each and every one of us. This building is not the temple of God. You need to get that. You are the temple of God, which means you carry the presence of God with you everywhere you go. That's our understanding of God's presence with us in our lives now, today, as a result of the gospel of Christ. But for Jonah, his understanding of being in the presence of God would have been being inside the temple courts. So it's here from the Mediterranean Sea, about to drown, his lungs filling with water, that he cries out and prays and yearns to be in the presence of God. Jonah's longing for and looking to a time when he was in right relationship with God, when he was obedient and back in the presence of God, worshiping. And that becomes his, his only rescue, his only, uh, if you will, sanctuary, is to consider the time when he was in the presence of God in the temple, even in the midst of drowning in the sea. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. This is serious. Again, this isn't just a, an emotional, uh, spiritual metaphor like we might read in the Psalms. Jo- Jonah's actually living this and giving us a, a blow-by-blow description of his own drowning. He says, the water closed in over me to take my life. What does that mean? I sank. My strength failed me. I couldn't keep my head above water anymore. I looked up and I saw the surface of the water enclose over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. I mean, he's drifting to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea so much so that he's tangled up in the seaweed, in the vegetation. He gives us in verse 6 a description, at the roots of the mountains. He's at the bottom. He's looking at the what he calls the roots of the mountain, the mountain's floor as they reach to the lower levels. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This self-induced downward slide has brought Jonah to the very gateway of death. He described himself as being at the depths of the grave. The peril is so great It's so dark, it's so broken, it's so close to death that this will be a moment when God's grace will shine brightly or it will not shine at all. For Jonah admit that he had sunk so deeply he could no longer swim. Jonah is a man in an absolutely desperate situation. He's perishing. The sailors were perishing in chapter 1, verse 6. Jonah is now perishing in chapter 2, verse 6. And in chapter 3, verse 9, we'll see that the Ninevites, too, are perishing. What hope is there for people who are perishing? Only the grace of God. Second half of verse 6. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Amen, amen, amen. Anybody else pray that prayer? Anybody else say those lines? God, you brought my life up from the pit. That's Jonah's prayer. He's brought back from the brink of death and destruction and has found salvation. That salvation was only found in the Lord. Hence the need for us to cling to him alone, the sole author of salvation, as we'll see in a few moments. That salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. 
Jonah's description of his life before God intervenes supernaturally and physically can be used as a wonderful description of our life spiritually before God intervenes. That we are drowning and sinking at the results of the work of our own hands. That our sin separates us from God. That we are born into it with a sin nature and then we accentuate that nature with our actions. Until we find our lives and our circumstances so dire that we feel like we're drowning in the midst of the terrible mistakes we've made. And perhaps the more we we try to fight and move against it, the lower we sink and the more dire it feels until we have nowhere to turn. It is in those moments when the grace of God shines the brightest. It's the whole purpose of Christ is to rescue us from that. To rescue us down from the pit in which we are born into and accentuate by our choices. That Jesus came to serve as the righteousness of God for us because we could never be righteous. Came to obey the word of God that we could never obey. Came to live the life we could never live. Came to die the death that we could die but would result in eternal separation from God. No, Jesus dies for us as the perfectly righteous sacrifice on our behalf for our sins and that is raised to new life foreshadowing the resurrection power of God that will raise us up spiritually now and physically and spiritually forever later. Jonah's of circumstances perfectly mirror ours spiritually. The Christian gospel is unchanged through the century. Man is still perishing, and God is still saving those who will cling to Jesus, the only Savior for sinners. Amen? Amen. Verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Here Jonah comprehends in one verse what he had previously said, that he has been so distressed with his heaviest troubles that he had yet not been so cast down in his mind that he had no prospect of God's favor and power to save him. He first confesses that he has suffered some kind of fainting of his strength and his own power, that he's been harassed by anxious and perplexing thoughts so as not to be able by his own efforts to save himself. When my life was fainting away or failed within me, I remembered, he says. Jonah became not a conqueror. It wasn't until his soul fainted that he was ready to receive the grace of the Lord. It's not until our own selves are done, not until we have exhausted our own efforts, till our strength has failed, that we are ready. Where's Jonah? At the bottom of the sea, ready to die. That's when God intervenes. And yet Jonah prays from the bottom of the sea. Go back to verse 7. Look what he prays. He says, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you where? Into your holy temple. It is exactly at the darkest point in our lives that the grace and mercy of God shine the brightest. It is exactly at the darkest point in our lives, that the grace and mercy of God shine the brightest. Which means, if you are in the midst of a dark and difficult time, it is an opportunity for God's grace and mercy to shine the brightest right now. No waiting. No necessity. All you must do is cling to Christ. Verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, 
What an interesting moment for Jonah to pray. What an interesting moment for Jonah to recount his own failings, his own sufferings, the intervening of God's grace, knowing that in the midst of his physical certain death, that his prayer will reach God in his temple. And then in the, in the midst of his prayer, he begins to preach. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah's been reflecting upon his folly to run from the presence of God. Remember, we talked about this last week, that Tarshish became this this fantasy destination where he could escape the presence of God, where he could escape the burden of God, where he could escape the responsibility of God. You ever have that moment? You're like, God, I just wish there were a place where I could just be free of all of this stuff. For Jonah, Tarshish became that false idol Offering false promises, but delivering on none of them. The only thing awaited for him in Tarshish was more difficulty and trial. And so Jonah reflects upon that experience. He recognized that those who pay regard to vain idols, those who pay privilege and worship to vain idols, that shallow things that we worship rather than the eternal hope of Christ, forsake their hope of steadfast love. What does that mean? It means the affection of idols are finicky. The affection of an idol will not last. For a short time, man, maybe out of the thing that you worship rather than Christ, whatever that might be, maybe it's pleasure, maybe it's comfort, maybe it's security, maybe it's identity, whatever it is that thing that seems to get in the way of Jesus in your life, it will offer you temporary and often immediate pleasure. But in the long run, it will not be steadfast love. Why? Because idols are never satisfied. They continually require more and more and more and more of your soul, never giving anything in return until they leave you empty and broken and lost. Idols only offer selfish love, not steadfast love. It is an immediate, fleeting, selfish love. But you've, if, you, if, you spent, if you've spent any difficulty in your life battling addiction, this rings absolutely true. There is no more vain idol than the fleeting high of an addiction, whether it's a, a substance or a food or a relationship. You're constantly chasing more and more and more. And for Jonah, that's what Tarshish was for him. This vain, fleeting, false idol that offered the promise of escaping God's presence and call and responsibility. It doesn't exist. Jonah's experience here means he would be faced and forced with the abandonment of his idols. You see, while God's grace is freely given, it is costly to receive. It will cost you your idols. And the longer you try to worship both, the more difficult the struggle will become. The less peace you'll have, the more anxiety. Jesus spoke of this in the Gospels when he talked about us not being able to serve two masters. In its context, he talked about money and God. I don't know what context you need to hear that in, but you need to hear that this morning. You cannot serve two masters. The grace of God found in Christ is offered to you freely today, but it will cost you your idols, like it did Jonah. Verse 9. 
But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Now, Jonah's prayer turns. Again, I, I told you there's prayer of confession and repentance. We've, we've heard that. Jonah describes his physical circumstances, his spiritual circumstances. There's, there's some reality that, that idol worship is not what Jonah wants to continue to do. And now here we see some, some prayer of commitment and worship on behalf of Jonah. In verse 9, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What's Jonah promising? To do what God has asked him to do. With a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What? With a voice of thanksgiving, with gratitude in my voice, God, I will sacrifice. I will do that which you have asked me to do. What I have vowed, I will pay. Jonah says that he will make good on what he's vowed. The sacrifices that he speaks of look back to his past, the past mercies he's received. The vows he's going to make look forward to future service for God. Does he mean these in the, in the context of his prayer in verse 9? Absolutely. Will he keep them perfectly? No. That's why grace is required. Amen. And then the culmination of Jonah's prayer is found here in verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Write that down, please. Put it somewhere in your notebook. Put it somewhere where you can see it. It's in, your, it's in your app. Take a screenshot and save it in your photo roll. The lesson of salvation here is not merely that God's grace is made, based, uh, made available in the initial act of deliverance. What does that mean? It means that God's grace is not just about the time you prayed and came to the realization of it the first time. We cannot live the, the Christian life with this thought that, okay, I prayed a prayer at some point in my life and God deliver me and so I'm set. I punch my ticket. I've got my fire insurance. The policy's set. But rather salvation is a whole application to our whole life this side of eternity. For Jonah, salvation would not just be this moment when God rescues him from a physical danger, but rather would be a spiritual transform, transformation that we will see God continue to work throughout the rest of this story. And ultimately, we hope for the entirety of Jonah's life. There's an ongoing lesson here when we read salvation belongs to the Lord. It is the lesson of God's persevering grace. That God's grace will teach us and discipline us Often in the times when we become wayward and headstrong and disobedient, just like Jonah did, that salvation is a work of a lifetime and that ultimately it belongs to and is the work of God. Amen. Charles Spurgeon said this, he says, learn this good sentence of theology in a strange college. What he meant was, I learned that salvation belonged to God not in the university, not in the classroom, but in my daily living. It was a strange college. It's not gleaned from a Bible college or a good book, but rather this truth that salvation belongs to God has to be chiseled into our hearts from traumatic experience. Because through those moments of traumatic experience, just like Jonah is suffering and enduring, that we really find what is steadfast in our soul and in our heart. In our own family's experience this year, we've had two beloved family members pass away. Those of you who know have been following along, my dad passed in February, and then we lost uh, Sherry's grandmother just a couple months later. It is in those moments of trauma, and, and six months later, I, I found it in the, in the moment that my dad passed, the night my dad passed, as hard as that was, man, it's, it's not as hard as six months later 
thinking about him. It's, it's the moments when we, we experience his absence. For those of you praying for my mom, thank you. Appreciate it. She's, she's doing well. She's in the process of buying a new home in Palm Springs and moving there and establishing kind of the next act of her life. But it's in those moments, like signing escrow papers with just one signature, choosing paint colors with her son rather than her spouse. It's in, in those moments when God's grace is tri- chiseled into our hearts. Because a part of it, we're, we're just left in perpetual mourning. But with the knowledge of God's grace, and that this life is not all there is, there's a moment of happy brokenheartedness. We're brokenhearted, but we know this is not it. That God, my dad's absent from us, but he's, presence with our, he's present with our God. Salvation belongs to the Lord is not learned in a Bible college or a good book, but it's a truth that must be chiseled into our souls. When we realize that we are utterly unable to save ourselves, just like Jonah, we have to see that from beginning to end, saving the perishing is alone God's unique and beautiful and wonderful work. Dr. Edmund Clowney says this about Jonah and particularly about verse 9. He says, when I reached the book of Jonah, I came upon this verse, salvation is of the Lord. I realized then that the Bible did not give a full history of Israel, but a history of God's work of saving his chosen people. It is all about what God did. He who holds the world in his hand came down to save us. The Bible is the story of how God came down to be born of the Virgin Mary, to live and die for us, and to rise in triumph from the tomb. It was not my grip on God that was my hope, but his grip on me. Jonah 2 verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It was not Jonah's grip on God from the belly of the fish that rescued him, but rather God's grip on Jonah through the whole journey thus far that has rescued him. Here are your takeaways. Number one, when the Lord heavily afflicts us, it is a legitimate and seasonable time for prayer. They enter into the presence of God just like Jonah did. And then finally, it is out of our own experience of grace that we are able to share the gospel with others. We're going to see this lived out in Jonah's life next week. In chapter 3, when Jonah's going to keep what he vowed, when after having experienced God's grace, he's ready to be a messenger of it. This morning, if you're ready to respond to the salvation of God, if you're ready to believe that salvation belongs to God from beginning to end, there are two things you must believe and one thing you must do. Number one, you must believe like, like Jonah, you are in the depths of the grave without God. That sin and its effects have separated you from God and it has left you spiritually dead, drowned at the bottom of the ocean. The second thing you must believe is that you must have faith like Jonah did, that salvation belongs to God. That Jesus Christ willingly traded his life for yours through the cross and that his resurrection is the guarantee of eternal life for those who believe. If you're ready to believe these two things, the final thing you must do, you must commit yourself to him. The Bible speaks of this in different ways, but in each case it's clear. It's an act of our will to choose to follow Jesus Christ. It says that we're to believe in Jesus, which is to place ourselves in his hands. If you're ready to believe these two things and to do this final thing, let's pray together right now and ask God to help us.
Father, we thank you for this morning. We're grateful for your word, God. What's more, Father, we're, we're grateful that you keep your word, which contains stories of people who fail and fall down all the time. And so, God, in a room of people who fail and fall down all the time, we can experience grace this morning, and we are grateful. I pray, Father, for the ways in which we cling to false idols, you would rescue us. You would give us the courage to cast them aside. You would give us the insight to see that the pleasure, security, comfort, whatever they're offering to us is only fleeting and only seeks to ensnare and enslave us. God, I pray for us as we continue to worship you, that as we give our offerings, they would flow out of a generous heart, that as we receive communion, God, it would be in faith in the power of your son's death and resurrection. And as we sing songs, God, that they would be filled with a heart of joy. That we would sing as Jonah did, God, in the midst of his prayer, with thanksgiving, God, we will offer sacrifices of worship. Would you give us a sense of joyful gratitude now as we worship? We ask all of these things through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.